1: But if you're trying to single one out, a solo target there is much easier to go into than a a big group. We record everything, so there's no BSing, no lying, no faking it with us. (laughs) Did did we hit the record button?
0: I forgot to hit the (laughs) record button. If you want to know something about elk hunting, this probably isn't podcast to listen to. (laughs) (laughs) Should we give them a list of all the other podcasts where they might learn something? (laughs) Well, folks, we are here. This time we're in Bozeman, Montana. We are. For another episode of the Elk Talk podcast.
1: With Corey Jacobson. And Randy Newberg. Brought to you by... (laughs) The Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. The the Rocky Mountain
0: Elk Foundation. And we're going to solve some really serious elk problems today. Wait, Wait a minute. There are problems with elk? Well, let me restate that. We uh, we cause problems for elk, right? Last podcast, we we went way too long. <laughs> how how did we end up at almost two and a half hours
1: in a podcast? Uh, people are in for a real. Uh, What's the word? I can't even. I want to say treat, but that would have been way too sarcastic. Yeah.
0: Well, some guy called me and he said, Hey, if I knew, knew I had to put in for vacation time to finish your podcast.
1: <laughs> well, I got a message from a guy that said listening to you two talk was like listening to two women from back east gossip. Really? Yeah. I didn't Uh, know whether he was meaning that as a compliment or...
0: That'd be offensive to the women back East. (laughs) That's what I thought. (laughs) (laughs) So, I think what we ought to do, because we asked people for comments, right? And we got, I don't know if it's thousands, I got hundreds of comments. Lots of emails and messages on Instagram, yeah. So, people said that they wanted more consumable pieces. I don't know what consume to me consumable means. Like I eat it. Yeah. Uh, But I think what they were talking about is they wanted shorter, maybe hour-long, hour and fifteen-minute type
1: pieces. Yeah. A lot of the comments I got were, "Hey, I go to the gym and I spend an hour there. I want to be able to listen to a podcast on my way to the gym while I'm at the gym and be done, not have to go back and listen to half of one the next day." So that hour time frame seemed to be. A lot of people were just saying that's that's ideal. And if we can crank out more podcasts, you know, right. instead of every two weeks, we can get it down to every week, then they're gonna have more consumable bite-sized pieces of you and I gossiping like women for. There, the there you go. So
0: with that, folks, what you're gonna hear on this <laughs> podcast is we're gonna finish up what would have took at least another hour. We would have if we would have finished the last two mistakes, On the prior podcast, we would have been there for three and a half hours.
1: Because we dove into top five elk hunting mistakes that hunters make. You had your top five, I had mine, Yep, and mine were a lot wordier. And so we have two of them left, if I remember it, top two. Yeah, we got setups and
0: calling mistakes. Yeah, But before we get to that part, we better take care of the business of telling people who makes this podcast possible. And in case they weren't listening in the prior podcast, I guess we probably ought to go through the list. We said who it was presented by.
1: Yep. The Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation is the title sponsor of Elk Talk podcast, and it's a good fit. Yeah. Imagine that. Yeah. (laughs) RMEF, Rocky Mountain
0: Elk Foundation, title sponsors a podcast called Elk Talk. Yeah rmef.org. Go there and become a member. Absolutely. Or a volunteer. And I say
1: it in every episode, but if you're an elk hunter and not a member of the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, I would just encourage you to look into what their mission is and consider being a member. Yeah. And what is their mission? Their
0: mission is ensuring the future of elk, other wildlife, their habitat, and our hunting
1: heritage. I mean, if you're an elk hunter, you have to fit in that box. Yeah.
0: I can't believe I remember you. You really threw that one at me. I, I knew remembered you remembered that. it. Gosh, it was almost like my social security number. I was rattling <laughs> off there. But the uh, the other one is: Did you get your care package from Gerber yet?
1: It showed up. So we left. I've been on the road for the last week. Yeah. It showed up the, the afternoon we left, so we could go uh, today. Okay. So it's sitting on my porch. If no one's stolen it,
0: <laughs> which where I live.
1: <sighs> The only person who would have stole it would have been the FedEx driver. Really? And we know how okay. to get a hold of him. Okay. He, you know him well. I don't know him very well, but I know what? how to get a hold
0: of him. Okay. All right. <laughs> so anyhow, Gerber sends me like a care package a week. I don't know if they think I'm losing knives. And Lauren is like, Randy, be giving these away. Be... So I shouldn't have said that. Now people, nah, no kidding. people are going to think, why aren't you giving knives away? Yeah. Uh, what do we have to do to get ours? I know. So anyhow, Gerber gear. Makes amazing knives. I've been using them for a long time. They're Gerber Vital. They're Big Game Vital. If you are an Elk Hunter, you're going to want to have those in your pack. And then the other company that is, uh, I guess you've been with them
1: since forever. I mean. I've been with every company forever, it yeah. seems like. Sitka Gear. Yeah. So. And right here in Bozeman, Montana. Right here. We should. Yeah. We should have called We them. should have went and done the podcast there.
0: What were we thinking?
1: Well, they don't have the guard dog. Well, that's true. Yeah, folks, if you <laughs> see a little white dog
0: running through here, it's not animation. We're at my house, and my wife is taking care of elderly parents, so I'm on dog detail. I have a 15-year-old, completely deaf, mostly blind, incorrigible cockapoo <laughs> that thinks Corey is the greatest guy around. But I, I wondered why she was so attracted to Corey. He, he's been camping all week. He reminded me that he hadn't showered. And so I think
1: the dog feels that uh, maybe like there's some,
0: <laughs> I didn't smell the dog. Something so. foul. Yeah, there. There's,
1: there's definitely uh, <laughs> my odor is high uh, on the odor scale. But anyhow, Sitka gear. Sitka gear. Yeah. Making Amazing. incredible, uh, Technical clothing for hunters.
0: Yeah, you get your Apex set. Yeah, I had some
1: previously. Yeah. Yeah, I've been hunting in it. And honestly, early season uh, elk hunting, I can't even wait to try it because it's what it's made for.
0: Yeah, it certainly seems that way. Yeah. I've I've got mine downstairs. But I'm not going to get my first elk hunt. I'm not going to be elk hunting until September while I leave here on the 4th be hanging out yeah it's gonna be like the fifth or sixth before I get okay. into it I, you, I thought you, you were have, gonna say later yeah, in September and yeah, I was gonna you'll have
1: like six or seven of them already stiffing on the ground <laughs> by that time <laughs> we'll uh, hopefully have a couple anyway we get to start August 25th this year in in Oregon, Oregon. for Roosevelt oh oh yeah you're, you're going with the born and raised guy no we couldn't figure our schedules out on that okay. so we're going with uh, David Brinker
0: Oh, Brinker. Brinker's here playing his guitar this
1: week. He'll be at the Total Archery Challenge. Former marketing guy at At Sitka Sitka
0: Gear. Huh. Well, anyhow, Sitka sponsors this podcast, makes amazing product. Go to your local retailer try it on, check it out, buy some, yeah. and understand it's going to last you for years and years and years and, and the years.
1: And thing, be sure that you're talking to somebody that knows the gear before you order it because I tough. get people that call and they're like, I just spent half of my paycheck on Sitka gear and I went elk hunting in it and I froze or I sweated the whole time and yeah. you know, they bought duck waders or something. So you have to get the yeah. gear that is tailored for your style of hunting and it becomes a system and it truly yeah. is... Uh, a valuable piece of your elk system. Yeah, and the layering and treating it like a system is,
0: that that's the yep. critical part. Uh, Gohunt.com, uh, right now, I mean, you and I use Gohunt a lot.
1: Well, I just spent last week probably three hours on it, and you think, why in the middle of July is Corey spending time on Gohunt? It's yeah. more than just draw odds. Yeah. So <laughs> much more info there.
0: Yeah, there's, a, I mean, it, it's got harvest statistics. It's got moisture patterns. It's got so much information. And I know people hear me talk about it a lot. Well, right now they can get a 30 day free trial of the insider, kind of the behind the scenes back, roll back the curtain. It's the full, yeah, Yeah. everything there. And to get that folks, you want to go to gohunt.com with a forward slash elk talk one word, elk talk, and sign up for your 30-day free trial. And I can assure you, you're going to get a lot of value out of your 30 days <laughs> because it's free. Yeah, I but was going to say. That's, it, it's kind of like, that, that, that's almost like cheating. That's, that's like getting, uh, uh, what do they call it, a gateway drug. Get, letting you t- letting you touch it and use it, after you use it, you're like, I. Uh, <laughs> sign I up. was the
1: same way. I was skeptical when they first, you know, when I sat down at, I think it was at Vegas at the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation show several years ago when they first came out. And I was yeah. completely skeptical. Uh, they talked me into it, just showing me a couple of the features yeah. there. And I've been a member ever since. And yeah. yeah, It's there's so much value beyond just draw odds, which I think initially was their Their platform for launch was, you know, we've got the most accurate draws and they do. And you can see any state, how many points it takes to draw any tag. Uh, But there's so much more value, even in over-the-counter type units. You can put in there, I want to draw a unit or go hunting with zero points and they'll show you what units are available. And then you can narrow it down from there on harvest success on basically any Public versus private land yeah. percentages. Yeah, we could spend this podcast talking, <laughs> talking about, about, it, go about Hunt. but
0: go to gohunt.com forward slash elk talk and sign up. Yep. So I see you brought your pouch of stuff here. Uh, <laughs> one of the other partners we have is Rocky Mountain Hunting Calls. Yes. And in there is—is is this like the Corey Jacobson Skunk Works lab here? Like the, this, the these are the
1: calls that I always keep protected. Really? So no, no one. They're gets always to see on them. my person. Hmm.
0: Yeah. I
1: don't know, folks, that sounds a little suspicious to me. (laughs) Is it too early to mention we might be working on something new? No. Okay. Well, I just mentioned it, so we're good. Okay, yeah. So yeah, Rocky Mountain Hunting Calls is a sponsor of Elk Talk Podcast Mm -hmm. and uh, make great elk calls. Yeah, and go to Rocky Mountain Hunting Calls and buy
0: yours for this upcoming season and save 15% when you use the promo code Elk Talk. Yep. We're making this pretty
1: easy. You know, I was just going to yeah. say, even somebody like you and I could can remember it. the promo code. Right. Which if we How can, it can remember it sitting here, and, and Randy doesn't have notes this time. So if we no. can remember it, you can remember it. That
0: That's that's pretty, that's a good way to say it. If I can remember, it's kind of like... I said we. yeah. Well, I know, but it's like the old Geico commercial, so simple, even a caveman <laughs> could do it. Well, if Randy can do it, anyone can do it. So, and last, we certainly don't want to forget about them, as Onyx. OnyxMaps.com is the, the website you would go to. We were just talking about it before we turned on the mic about how we use, well, right here, folks, this one. Oh, if you go to Elk Foundation headquarters, you see that? You get that little Team Elk thing that keeps your phone from sliding around, huh? What's that? Oh, a little. See that? It's more than a sticker. It's more than
1: a sticker. It's rubber. Your yeah. phone
0: won't slide When you take a sharp corner, your phone doesn't slide across the dash of your truck.
1: So anyhow. for those of you who aren't watching this on YouTube and you're listening, Randy has a little anti-sliding pad on the back of his cell phone case. It says T Elk. It says T Elk. It's really sharp looking and it yeah. keeps it from sliding around. Yeah. And But I still have a lot of cracks on my screen. Well, <laughs> I've seen your truck after hunting season. Uh,
0: anyhow, Onyx, I am the app guy now.
1: Uh, and I would
0: suggest everybody go out, get the app, um, use it. Get uh, you'll have it on your smartphone, get it on your laptop or your, your uh, desktop, laptop,
1: whatever. Syncs up. You, know, you put waypoints on one, they show up on the other. Yeah. We were in Glacier National Park this week. My 11-year-old was with me last night picking huckleberries. And of course it's grizzly country. And he yeah. was getting nervous and he said, can you pull up that little map on your phone and see how far from camp we are? And so I was able to pull it up right there and show him we're only about 300 yards from camp. We're okay here. <sighs> well, if, if you... uh are are into do
0: what we are. I think they are, if they're listening, yeah. Public Land Elk Hunting. You need the Onyx system. Yep. And they can save 20% if they go to onyxmaps.com. No small com. discount. That's a, that's that's a huge 20%. discount. Yeah. And you go there and you use promo code <gasps> uh, uh elk <laughs> There you go. So there you have it, folks. 20% savings at... On X, fifteen percent savings at Rocky Mountain Hunting Calls. Thirty
1: yep. day free trial. Like go hunt. I mean, we, we just we're, gave them more than their. Even if they, were. I was gonna say, even if they aren't getting any value from anything we talk about, yeah, we're providing some value there. Well,
0: I'm, I'm pretty sure that they're not getting a lot of value from anything I'm talking about. <laughs> but so yes. let's get to your two mistakes. Two, two mistakes. With, the two remaining mistakes that we didn't get to on the last podcast were setups and calling mistakes. Yep. Which do you prefer to go to first?
1: You know, I think they they go hand in hand. Okay. And if you have a bad setup and you have good calling, you're not going to be successful. Okay. And if you have a great setup, but you aren't on the, on the page with calling, mm-hmm. you aren't going to be successful. So I think they go hand in hand that you need both of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the setup comes before calling. So we can start there okay. and kind of walk through a some of the mistakes and then how to correct those mistakes. Okay. So
0: I'll, I'll tell you,
1: I, I, this is, was Randy
0: Newberg when he first started archery elk hunting. I'd hear an elk. I'd get 200 yards away and I'd think I was going to call him in. And every once in a while, I'd stumble into one at 50 yards and I'd think, well, I'm going to call him in. And I'd get behind a tree. Like, Oh. You know, kind of hide and seek like when you're a kid. <laughs> I mean, I'm thinking about all the things I was doing wrong. It's the,
1: like I wrote the book on
0: how to, <laughs> how to do bad setups. I think so. anyone
1: who's elk hunted has, a, has at least a chapter in the book on how to mess up a setup. Yeah.
0: So yeah. when you do it, I mean, you've done it so many times. What's going through your mind when you're at that point where, all right, we got to get set up because this bull is coming. Yep. Is there, is there something that instantly is the very first thing that goes through your mind?
1: Yeah, I think it's, it's stepping back and thinking about the psychology of an elk. Okay, and, and, you know, an elk's a wild animal. We don't know how their brain works, but they're survivalist, no doubt. And when they come into a setup, no matter how good of an elk caller you are, no matter how deep in the rut they are, they're still thinking about surviving. And that setup has to at least make them feel like it's survivable. You know, if they there's there's so many things. We'll get into a lot of those, but that's probably the first thing. Where is the elk most likely to come in and feel safe? And he's not going to come through a big brush thicket. He's probably not going to walk across a wide open meadow. Those are things I look at initially and say, okay, he's not going to come there. He's not going to come here. Here are the three remaining areas he could come in. And which of those three is he going to feel most protected? And then in addition to that, which of those three am I going to be able to either fool his senses or overcome his senses. So you, you made some really big assumptions
0: of knowledge there. Yeah. Because when I look at the (laughs) landscape, I'm, uh, I don't even, I'm not good enough to know, do I eliminate this or eliminate you? Because you said, okay, you eliminate this open spot, you eliminate this. That's just knowing the habits of elk that, that allows you to, quickly make that assessment?
1: You know, I wouldn't say it definitely helps, but I think there's things that that you can learn about the habits of elk uh, without experience. Obviously, experience adds to that knowledge. But for instance, last year in Wyoming, we were doing the Land of the Free project with Born and Raised, and one o'clock in the afternoon, a bull bugles from his bed, which I love that scenario, where above him, everything's good, except for the fact there's a wide open meadow, probably 200 or 300 yards across, and before we can do anything and react, that bull standing on the edge of the meadow. Hmm. And I thought we're hosed. Yeah. You know, that bull is standing there. He's surveying up above. He's looking for something. There's no way at one o'clock in the afternoon with bright sunlight, he's going to step out into that meadow. Yeah, And he did. He walked right out into it straight across, didn't even worry about the wind, came on a beeline right up the hill to us. And that that's a gift. That yeah. does not happen. Do not <laughs> count on that happening. But it, that, that goes contrary to my thinking. Yeah. You know, my thinking is he's on the edge of that meadow. We've got the wind coming up to us, so we're good there. But in order for us to get around into the timber with him, we, we don't have a play. We yeah. have to sit back and just wait. There's nothing we can do in that situation without taking a really big risk that, that we're going to run him off. So, you know, that one was a gift that, that broke the laws of elk hunting setups, (laughs) but for the most part, if you are in a really thick area and you've, you've, you know, you've got an open hillside that you're climbing up, the bull's got an open ridge he's on, but in between you, there's a draw that's just thick with alders or some kind of tangled mess. That bull's probably not going to step down off of the ridge, come through that because he's making noise. He can't see, you know, the only thing he's got then is his nose if he can get an approach. So If that's the case, I'm thinking if he's going to come in, he's going to have to go around that big patch of brush or that alder thicket. And he's going to want you to use, use his nose exclusively. So if the wind's blowing uphill, I've got to set up above that. And so it's just all of those different aspects that go into his three senses, his sense of sight, his sense of sound, and his sense of smell. And I've got to make him comfortable I feel like he's able to use all those things he's coming in. He's able to see where that sounds coming from and not get nervous. And at that point, when he can see where the sound's coming from, I'd better have had a shot as the shooter out there. Uh, For sound, as he's coming in, he's going to be stopping and listening. And so I'm going to want that caller back behind making noise, raking trees, breaking branches to hold his attention, make him feel like I know exactly where the danger is if that's danger. And now I can circle down below it and use my nose to see if it's danger. As the shooter out front, I'm set up to take advantage of that. So all of those senses come into play, and that's really how an elk stays alive—is through their senses. So as I'm as I'm picking that setup, I'm thinking about those three senses mm-hmm. and making sure that as the shooter, set up out front. You know, I guess probably need to step back. Definitely use the two-man setup—a shooter right. and a caller setup, if at all possible. Yeah, and and we can talk on solo strategies here in a bit because I think that's important as oh, well. It is. Um, but basically, use the same concept. You've got a shooter out in front that the elk doesn't know about and a caller back behind. And if it's a solo setup, you've just got to play both of those parts in that same way. (laughs) He doesn't know you're the shooter up front, but he knows you're the caller and he knows where you're at behind. Uh, So we we can get to that uh, in more detail. That's going to be interesting. Yeah,
0: A lot of times uh, there are obstacles between you and the bull. Yeah, Maybe it's Uh, like you were saying there's a a deep spot with some alders or maybe it's just he's comfortable because 80 yards over there there's two little fingers that come off the ridge you're on one and he's on the other and is he do do you have to let him say all right i'm comfortable on this little finger ridge and you just have to move to some place where he's comfortable moving off there because i've had many times like that where he's just not Get him moved. Right. You're, you're not going to get him to leave that little ridge, drop down in a 30-foot depression, yep. and come up the other ridge.
1: And it's important, I think, at that point to understand why. Why? Why is he not going to come down any farther? He wants to come in. Their their instinct is to come into the cow calls for breeding purposes or come into the bugle for fighting purposes. That's That's a natural instinct of an elk. Mm-hmm. And if they hang up or if they turn and leave, there is a reason for that. And I think understanding why before you get in that setup is important. So the the scenario you mentioned, he gets on a ridge, he doesn't want to come down into the draw and up on the ridge that you are on. There's a couple of reasons. First off, he may be able to see from that other ridge where the calls are coming from. And if he can see that location and not see an elk, instantly that danger mechanism is triggered. And he's thinking, okay, I hear an elk, but I don't see one. something's wrong. And I'm not going a step closer until I know that something's not wrong. And at that point, that's where they hang up. And it's usually that 80 to 120 yards, which is the crutch of most bow hunters, getting them that last distance. So the caller's setup is just as important as the shooter's setup. You've got to be in a position where that bull has to come to a certain point, meaning inside the shooting lanes, before he can see where the calls might be coming from and, and get nervous. The other thing is if he drops down that hill as he turns and comes back up, he's at a physical disadvantage. So as he's coming up the hill to your calls, he's going to be wary because he's going to think another bull that's out of his mind in the rut right now and wants to kill me is going to come barreling down the hill and have that physical advantage. So huh. calling a bull straight up a hill can be more difficult. So getting on the same level can, can solve that. If you get on the same level as the elk, he's going to feel a lot more comfortable coming around where he doesn't feel like he's at a disadvantage physically.
0: Cause I'm, I'm, as you're talking, my mind is running through about a hundred scenarios I've screwed up <laughs> and can't get them to come from 90 or 80 or a hundred or yeah. whatever. There's always a reason. Right. And, and I've done it in places where there's a lot of blowdown and I can't go the place I want to go to try get them to come around the blowdown because the wind will be wrong. Yep. Is
1: that just There's one? a reason they're there. Right. They're, and that's, you know, their bedding areas are just like that. They bed in an area where they have the wind coming up the hill, so they're protected from below. And then there's a maze of brush or of blowdowns or a wide open hill where they can use their other sense to protect them. So a situation like that, I
0: know for sure I can't go around because the wind's gonna mess me yeah. up. Sometimes you just gotta back out and wait. Yep.
1: Yeah, if if you are not able to overcome their senses, you will not win. Yeah. Not on a on a basis enough where you can count on it Hmm. well i've
0: i i i am just i'm sure that that the listeners and the and the viewers are think right in their hand like uh, <laughs> what well, about
1: this situation right yeah and so i think we can go even farther there uh that that's one situation where the bull won't come across to draw in here mm-hmm. calls there's a couple reasons there why uh, another one is if you are above an elk you can see down really well right and, you know, anybody who's hiked a mountain knows that looking up, you've got the brush right there, your visibility is limited. Yeah. But if you're up high looking down, you can see all the way down to the bottom of the drainage sometimes. And when an elk comes in to a setup, if they can get an advantage a above you, they're going to feel safe. Right. But the problem is they're going to stand right there and wait to see something. <laughs> so visually, <laughs> they've got the advantage when they're above you and they'll hang up at that 100 yards or 120 yards, waiting until they can see something. And so getting them to come down a hill and into a setup, a lot of times they don't come in because they hang up again at that 100-yard mark. So So another uh, benefit of getting on that same level.
0: So the solution to that is possibly be at the same elevation on the hillside? and Side hill. Side hill, and maybe then you've got a perpendicular thermal. Let's say it's in that... Late morning, it's 11 o'clock. Yep. Thermal's now going uphill. Yep. You would try to get at the same elevation as them, get close enough. You know you don't have a perfect wind in your face, but at least you've got a wind going uphill. So, and honestly,
1: you just stole my thunder. Okay, but, I'm sorry. <laughs> that's, I'm that's trying the, to walk
0: this through. That's for the, the golden listener.
1: ticket of moving in at the same elevation or side hill to an elk is you don't have the wind in your face, but I would much rather, I think a wind at perpendicular 90 degree angle to your moving pattern is far better than a wind at your face. And the reason really? why is if you have a wind at your face, if it switches, if cloud cover comes over, if you're at that diurnal change where the wind goes from downhill to uphill, it changes 180 degrees. And if you've got a perfect wind in your face in the morning as you're moving up the hill right below the elk, right behind them, they're going to bed and you're following them up the mountain, everything's good. When the wind switches, it blows straight at them. Straight to them. So if you can get on a parallel ridge and follow them and get side hill from them and move across, if wind switches, it doesn't follow you up, it doesn't give them a physical or a physical disadvantage, and it doesn't give them a visual advantage. So uh-huh. all of a sudden, you've conquered three of the biggest things that an Kings up on simply by moving in from a side hill approach or mm-hmm. setting up on a side hill path.
0: Yeah. Huh. All these are little tidbits. Uh, can I take notes while you're talking <laughs> here? Uh, I'm sure somebody is raising their hand saying, you know what? I hunt flatter country. I hunt eastern Montana. I hunt central Wyoming. I hunt the pinyon juniper flats of Arizona or New Mexico. Yeah, And they're there, there's none of these topography things of little draws or whatever. They're just out here and I, I can't get them to come through the junipers. They, totally. they stand back there a hundred yards. I can hear them raking a juniper. I can maybe hear them walking, but I can't get them to come in.
1: And the other thing is the ground in a lot of those places is so rocky that they can hear you from 200 yards and know exactly. So if you're the shooter out in front and you're trying to move in and get set up, they already have a little bit of a, idea of where you're at and that hey there's something else up here i need to be wary of so it does yeah. it takes more uh just attention to how to get that elk to come in closer yeah. and maybe that means the collar and the shooter are farther apart and you've got to pull that bull through a an area where he's comfortable where you have more cover as the shooter to get set up see uh, because as someone who rifle hunts a lot yes yeah. when
0: i'm all right there's a bull over there yeah i i'm trying to be quiet but if I got to make ground, I'm not all that quiet yeah. because I got the advantage that if he's within 300 yards, I'm going to shoot him. Yep. Archery. A... <laughs> he's going to I mean they probably hear me in rifle season. Yep. But they're just they just kind of stand there like
1: where they're they're assessing. Right. Where's the danger? Where's the noise? Where's my best approach to go in to feel protected with my senses and still get an eye on what I think is a really sweet-sounding cow? Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. So it uh, it just takes in every situation, it's going to be a little different, yeah. but it all comes down to the elk senses, making them feel comfortable without giving them a true advantage. And yeah, I mean, really, yeah. that's in any contest you do. You right. know, you want to you want to make the opponent feel like they have the upper hand, and then surprise them with right. the true but advantage. They, they
0: always have an advantage. They do. So, other setup things as far as that. that we're so we're talking about the two man setup. Yeah. The the uh, I hope, I, but we better say it just because there might be people who this is their first time at it. You always the, the the caller and and the shooter, they don't necessarily get in a straight line where you connect three dots. The elk, the shooter, and the caller. Right. You got to account for which direction the way yeah. it's going to go because if all things being equal, the elk to use his one sense of smell. Is he going to try to come in circle around on the
1: downwind side? Downwind. So
0: you want to have that shooter
1: anticipating that. Yep. And so I call it the arc. And you mentioned, you know, if you draw an imaginary line from the collar to the elk, and if that elk was on a string, he would come in right on that imaginary line. Well, the wind is either going to be blowing perpendicularly up or down across that line if you're coming in from a side hill point. Yep. And he is going to circle whichever way the wind's blowing. So if it's midday and the wind's coming up, he's going to circle up above your setup to come in. And again, he's going to have a a visual advantage. So he's going to feel protected by his sense of smell and his sense of sight. And he's going to feel comfortable coming in. So that bull is is highly likely to come in. As the the shooter set up out front, you've got to account for that. And if you stay down low on that straight imaginary line on the side hill, that bull's going to be above you and he's probably going to smell you before he gets to the setup and into the shooting lane. Yeah. So you want to account for that and get up a little bit higher, like you mentioned, offset. So I just draw an imaginary arc. You know, you have the straight line from the sh- from the collar to the elk. Yeah. And then you draw an imaginary arc uphill if the wind's blowing up or downhill if the wind's blowing down and as a shooter set up on that line. And it's, you know, people say, how far should it be? 60 yards off the straight line? Should it be 20 yards? find that place where the bull' is going to be most comfortable to come in if there's a beautiful game trail that's 30 yards below he's going to walk that yeah and you just need to be set up below that game trail if there's a great big wall of brush right there he might be forced to go up even though he wants to go down and it's going to be harder to convince him to come through and we can talk when we get into calling about some things that we can do there to to make him want to come in more but all of these little factors uh, an obstacle that Dale has to come through where he loses his ability to protect himself with sight and sound. Now he's relying strictly on nose. He's probably not going to give up that direction and not circle downwind if he can't, if he has to come through thick stuff. So just keep in mind the arc, A-R-C. It also stands for always remember concealment. Think about the three senses that an elk has. When you set up, make sure that he's going to be comfortable using those senses. And if he's not, whatever sense he's going to use, you have to take into account that sense and make sure you're overcoming it. So
0: a lot of times, I mean, we like to think, okay, we're going to draw this up on the whiteboard, like, you know, timeout in the basketball (laughs) game. You're, you're the basketball coach. You draw it all up. And well, this is how it's going to happen. Yep. Well, even if you and your partner are there drawing it up in the sand out, uh, out on the hill, sometimes it doesn't go as expected. So, the caller is there and the, the shooter goes downwind. Let's assume, let's say it's a down, downwind slope wind. They do the arc, but sometimes the bull just isn't cooperating. He he didn't read the plan. (laughs) So as a caller are in this setup, are you doing things in your movement to try draw the bull past the shooter? Because it seems to I mean, in my experience that the caller can get get by with a lot more movement, noise, and other stuff. Once that shooter is set up, yep. you kind of want that person sitting still, not moving, not right. making any noise, yep. because that elk is since they're closer, that elk's gonna detect them.
1: Yeah, that's that's your well. I mean that's your advantage, right? There's having that shooter out there completely undetected. So the second he starts moving around the elk hears a, a branch break he knows there's something there that's probably danger or potentially danger so you don't want the shooter moving around you don't want the shooter making that movement that's but on the flip side if you're the shooter and you need to make movement to make something happen if there's a lane that you know the bull's coming to and you need to get 10 yards closer to it to get a shot right you don't be timid that's the time you've got to take a chance and and get to it but for the most part I made a comment during the filming of The Linguist that Sitka put out, the film they put out uh, last summer. Um, when we were talking about calling, I just said, the caller becomes the quarterback. And I don't know where that comment came from or anything, but as I said it, I thought, that sounds really cool. And that's really what it is. You've got to call the shots. You've got to be the one that takes charge and puts that bull in the lap in the shooting lane for the shooter. And so, yeah, as a caller, sometimes I'm back there running 60 or 80 yards, you know, either running away, running close to get the bull's attention, to pressure him, moving around the ridge to make him come up to the top of the ridge into a shooting lane to look down on the other side. And as a caller, you just have to know where the shooter's set up, what the bull's doing, and then make a plan and a play to, to pull it into that lane. Uh, I, th- I think
0: a lot of people think once you craft your plan, I'm the caller, I'm here, you're the shooter, you're there, and everyone just stays put. And, yeah. and the bull read the plan and, he's <laughs> plan, and he's
1: supposed to walk by. Doesn't necessarily... In like an ideal that. situation, yes, but 90% so, of the time, it's definitely. not ideal. <laughs> which is why success rates are 10%, I think.
0: So. <laughs> uh, uh, are there other things in the in these setups? I mean, we could
1: spend yeah. forever talking
0: about this just kind of up. stuff.
1: But... Uh, A couple of key things I think that, you know, you mentioned before you always set up behind a tree and I was the same way. You want to hide from the elk. When the elk comes in, you don't want them to see you. Right. So the first thing you do is you get behind something (laughs) and you just eliminated 99% of your shooting shooting lanes. So if you have only 1% of your shooting lanes open as an option, you have to hope the bull comes in from behind you and surprises you and there's no longer an obstacle there. And now you've messed that up as well. So set up in front of obstacles, set up in front of a tree, set up in front of brush, in front of rock. If you have camouflage that breaks up your outline, which if you're wearing camouflage, it should be breaking up your outline. Set up in front of something, let the camouflage do its job. At that point, yes, you are exposed and elk are going to pick up on your movement. So you've got to make strategic moves. Draw your bow at the right time. uh, Take a step at the right time. If the bull turns his head, if his eyes go behind a tree, he's not going to see you. But if his eyes are exposed and he's 30 yards away, broadside, even if he's looking straight forward, they can see 270 degrees with their eyesight, with their eyes set on the side of their head. So even if you're 35 yards behind or 35 degrees behind that elk, you raise your bow to draw, he can see that even if he's looking straight away. Yeah. So keeping in mind that movement's the key there, strategic movement, draw your bow at the right time. That's yeah. that's important. The Probably the one thing
0: I notice, and I watch this in other hunters, and this gets to my waterfowling days, is shade. Yeah. I mean, I've seen people try to set up out in the wide, wide open of the sun. There's a tree there, or there's a brush there, and they are in full lit, area and maybe sometimes that's there's nothing you can do about that it's just how the setup works and who's coming from where but it just seems that the shade can help your camouflage work even more effectively when you set up
1: absolutely especially when it comes to movement and you know you're you're out in the sun and you're exposed your bow has metal on it you know there's just there's things that will reflect sunlight and even clothing, you know, it's not like it's reflective. But if there's a light color in that pattern, elk are going to pick up on that if it's illuminated by the sun. And so, like you mentioned, getting in the shade, if you if it's at all possible, is just going to camouflage you better. Yeah. So
0: setups as far as you you've got this. Let's say it's peak rut, and there's 12 cows, and you got two three bulls, kind of. One guy owns them, for lack of a better term. The other one or two are like... Want to. Yeah. Boy, I can't wait till I'm Big Hank someday. Yep. Um, any different setup in it when you have satellites versus a different setup when you have a solo bowl versus when it's like the big dude, man. This is the one I've been waiting for. Yeah. Big differences in how you do your setups for any of those scenarios? Yeah,
1: I think so. You know, if you've got a lot of bulls and and one bull is running all the cows, the other bulls are going to be very easy to call in. They're going to be, I mean, just a cow call and they will come running. A bugle, they just, they want to come in and see if they might be able to size you up and take over the cow. Or if there's a, happens to be a lone cow there, a cow that got separated from the herd, they're going to be very interested in that and almost desperate to where they'll drop their senses and, and come running in. So if you get in that environment where there are two or three bulls, one of the bulls is is very dominant, he's controlling all the cows, those other two bulls are an easy target. And if yeah. you aren't focusing on a specific bull or a certain size bull, I mean, it's those are easy elk to call in. Yeah. And I love those situations because those bulls will come walking right in, their guards drop, They're they're just in that mindset of, we're in an elk frenzy here. There's another bugle or a cow call over here. There's elk around. They don't even stop to think about there could potentially be danger. Yeah, And I think for most of us, that's an ideal situation. (laughs) I will shoot a mature five point who's a satellite bull. Even though there's a nice six point run in the cows, I'm not going to be picky most of the time. Yeah. And I know you're gonna say something about a hunt in Montana where that situation yeah, I'm happened. The, I'll but I'll let that rest. But I think we can even go back to that hunt and you could describe, you know, what we did to set up there and it probably falls into everything we've talked about two point, you yeah. know, getting down on the same level, waiting for the wind to be right, moving in close, all of these different things that are so important yeah. to the setup. And, you know, I I certainly wasn't following a script there, but it's almost natural at this point that that provides the most effective setup.
0: Yeah. So, uh, have you found that in pre-rut, like September 1st, your setups are different because of how the elk are just behaviorally slightly different than September 20th when it's a peak rut? Or do you just say, you know what, elk are elk all the time and uh, I just take into account the landscape and the wind and let it go?
1: Yeah, I I think... I think that's the beauty of the way that we set up and call elk is that, we don't have to change it based on situation. Yeah, there are little things that you have to tweak here and there. If a bull is really timid, you have to understand why. Is it early and he's just not fired up in the rut? Is it late and he's been pressured a lot? Are there predators in there? I mean, all of these different things will contribute to the attitude of the bull and you might have to adjust slightly. But at the, at the end of the day, the more comfortable you can make that bull coming into a setup or the closer you can get to that bull to entice him to come into the setup— the better off you are. And it doesn't matter if it's early, if it's you know, pre-rut, peak rut, even after the rut, sometimes the same situation will work. And I think the the real key to as we transition into calling, the key to the setup is getting as close to the elk as you can.
0: Understand that, folks. Get as close to the elk as you can before you do your setup.
1: And I say that all the time, and and without fail, I'll get 15 emails from people saying, well, I know you say to get as close as you can, but wh- what are we talking here? Are we talking 40 yards? Are we talking 400 yards? What are we talking? Yeah, we're talking as close as you comfortably can. And I've had people before say, well, I was able to slip in and I got 45 yards from the bull and got all set up and called and he got up and moved off. And my first thought is, you got 45 yards from the bull, why didn't you just shoot him? <laughs> you know, there's there's no reason to call at that point. So you got too close for calling. Uh, but ideally, I think my goal is 100 to 120 yards. And it probably only happens 25% of the time. Most of the time we're operating in that 150 to 200 yard range. Okay. And that's just realistic with terrain and the areas we hunt. It's just harder to get that close, especially as a shooter and keep that advantage of silence as you move in to get set up. Yeah. So people hearing this, I'm sure one of the questions is, should I be
0: call calling or should I be bugling when we're in this setup? So can you talk about calling now? Well, we can. Uh, well, before we get into calling mistakes, I, uh, as I was walking the dog and letting her do her business out there, I'm thinking there are going to be so many comments. Yeah. Corey, this is the scenario. Yep. Send them to us. Yeah, kinda, yeah. That's what I was thinking. Could, yeah. It'd be cool if we could take your general rules that you just kind of described there. Knowing there's an exception yep. to all the general rules, totally. That if people sent the emails with the detail, yep. And we'll grab them and try to get. Yeah, through we won't them.
1: be able to get to all of them because I don't know about you, but I get that's probably mm-hmm. this time of year one of the most common emails is last year I was hunting this area and encountered this. Will I encounter it again? Or yeah. I had a bull here and he hung up. Do you know why? And and like you said, these are general rules. Yes, they are the most effective ways I've found to to hunt elk and call elk, but they're general. Yeah. And (laughs) they they don't work every time. You have to be able to adjust, you know, slightly at least and not be locked into that. You know, you mentioned the caller and the shooter plopping down in a certain place and Mm -hmm. staying there. If that bull's not coming or if he's coming a different direction, you've got to be dynamic and get up and move and you've got to adjust for it. So, yeah. Well, I think we've just kind of scratched, scratched that. Yeah,
0: that, uh, There's still a big itch there to be scratched, yeah. I think, as it relates to...
1: Yeah. So go to, to elktalkpodcast.com. Just go to the contact form. We've got a, a comments area there. You can send us an email and we'll filter through them and try to yeah. come up with some situation-specific topics to talk about. Yeah. So we're going to go
0: into calling. And uh, before we turned on the mic, we were talking about The opinions of (laughs) so, I mean, everybody who's considered an elk hunting uh, expert, they all have their own opinions about calling. And... Uh, I say, if it if you hear it on this podcast, it's the right opinion. Oh, it's not even an opinion. It's, it's a fact. fact. <laughs> there you, there it's a go. fact on this podcast. So, so <laughs> and this is, this is not...
1: For and a, we say that, for those listening, that's very jokes. tongue-in-cheek. Yes, that, that is, is, yes, that is <laughs> very much tongue-in-cheek. We absolutely understand that our methods and styles and opinions might not match up and might not be the best way or the only way. Yeah. We're just, this is what works for us and... And yeah. uh, we want to share it. So I'm thumbing
0: through my Beagle magazine, which you get by being a member of the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. Which issue is that? This is the July, August oh, of 2018. Okay. And you pointed out to me that, hey, you ought to go read this article. There's, there's some differences in how people approach calling or what they think of calling. Really, I was distracted by this ad <laughs> over here. It says official uh, elk call. Rocky Mountain Hunting Calls, official elk call of RMEF. Yeah. Uh anyhow. Yeah. Chuck Adams, who's got more than his share of elk, he gave his opinion. Big elk. Yeah. <laughs> Big elk. He's he gave his opinion about it. And I'm gonna read it. Not and and this is Chuck's a great hunter and he's accomplished a lot of things, but I'm I'm doing this for the sake of people to understand that if you ask 50 hunters their opinion about calling, you're gonna get 150
1: variations of different answers all the way from zero tolerance to me running my mouth continually with an elk call during (laughs) september
0: so here's what chuck says and i'm partway through the article here it says think before you call as i've discussed before in this column many elk archers call too much with unrealistic expectations the super success enjoyed on promotional videos and tv shows by bow hunters hawking diaphragms grunt tubes and calls might seem astonishing but you should know that much of the success is filmed on game farms or in lightly hunted private ground. If you try the same raucous calling on public land, the only thing that you're likely to encounter is a deafening silence or other hunters. Modern elk can recognize fake calls from hundreds of yards away. Sure, a younger rut crazed bull might even run into your call but not very often. Even if your well-practiced calls sound great, it is painfully easy to call too much and call too close to a bull. Real herd bulls usually space their bugles or grunts at least 5 to 10 minutes apart, often even less frequently. And when pressed at less than a 100 yards, these hunter-shy creatures usually drift away. Most really successful bow hunters I know bugle from a distance to locate bulls, then shut up and rely on limb raking, cow calls, and widely spaced bugles or grunt only as a last resort if they cannot silently sneak in on the elk. In my experience, you will get more and better shots at elk if the animals never know you are in the neighborhood. And so I... I, and there we joked and said that the, <laughs> our opinions are the right opinions, but uh, the point of it is everyone's hunting experiences bring them to a different totally. conclusion about calling. Um, calling is something you excel at. Uh, I don't know if I excel at it. I absolutely love it. Okay. Well, whatever we'll, we'll term go with we that want. For now. Right. However we want to say that. And so I didn't bring that up to say Chuck's wrong. Or Chuck's right, or whatever. It's just that—that's he said in my experience. That—that's yeah, what he said. And
1: all you know, Chuck is a great guy, and yeah. I've met him. I hung out with him. Um, absolute wealth of knowledge, and the things that he has done for archery and bow hunting is, you know, unparalleled. Uh, but I disagree with him pretty strongly there. And <laughs> okay. and I, I preface it with that because he was pretty bold in a couple of his statements there. And he said something to the effect of real herd bulls only bugle every five or 10 minutes. Yeah. Or he said something about the real successful bow hunters I know call very little. Yeah. Um, those are some pretty bold statements. Yeah. And I think in some areas, open country of Montana, yeah, you're not going to call a bull from 600 yards away with very sparse cover, right. um, and you aren't going to be able to get closer to him other than spot and stalk. And if you give up your location, they're going to be watching, and they're going to be hung up there, and it's stalemate. So, right. in certain terrains and for certain hunting styles, absolutely, he's right. But to say that most really successful bow hunters I know only kill elk by spot and stalk and call very little. Uh, I would definitely challenge that. Now, with that being said, if you are targeting a 400-inch bull, yeah, it is true that by the time the peak rut kicks in, calling in a mature bull like that that's been around for 9 or 10 or 11 seasons, that has an established harem of cows, that his only purpose for being with them is to breed and then leave, that is a very hard target to call in. There is yeah. no doubt. Yeah but there might be six bulls around there that are 320 to 360 that are now satellite bulls uh-huh. that I will raise my hand <laughs> first every time if somebody yeah. says, would you shoot one of these satellite bulls? <laughs> so if that's the case, if you were targeting a specific bull, which Chuck Adams, I think, has killed two world record Rocky Mountain elk with a bow. Right. Um, he's obviously targeting a trophy animal, a specific size, age class animal, and calling might not be the most effective way to hunt that particular animal. Yeah. I would counter and challenge to say that you can be more successful calling an elk if you do it the right way than trying to spot and stalk one for 90% of the hunters out there. Yeah. And you know, I was talking to my 11 year old and he was just saying, I really want to shoot an elk this year. And I told him, you've got to shoot your bow a lot. And he said, why would I want to archery hunt? That's harder <laughs> for me. It's not for me. Archery hunting elk is easier uh-huh. than rifle hunting elk. Uh-huh. And it's because they call and I think they're a, a much more susceptible target because of that fact. So, again, with the utmost respect for Chuck Adams, yep. I would disagree with some of his opinion mm-hmm. on calling. So, with that, and that part of
0: the exercise was to let people know that if you're listening to this and you've got your opinions on calling, they're not wrong. Exactly. Their your hunting experiences have brought you to these opinions and yep. in, in these perspectives. And I mean, if
1: you don't have an opinion about it yet, listen to ours there, because there it's right the right one. one. All right. We're, we're, we're <laughs> here to win the election. We're, <laughs> no. we're
0: we're here to dominate. We we want this opinion to be the opinion accepted universally across the elk hunting world.
1: That's right. All right. So even going yep. a step farther with that, there are five or six other individuals that come to mind that have an opinion on calling mm-hmm. and they call a lot and they call very effectively, but their calling style differs from mine. Yeah, They're not wrong. Right, I'm not right. You know, this is just what works for us. And I, I think for, for the listeners, if you can glean something from, what we're sharing about calling. And it's an aggressive style of calling. It's a in-your-face, fast and furious. Yeah. It's, But it's there's nothing more exciting. But if you can glean something from that and take away something from what Chuck says about listening to bugles and shadowing the herd, spotting and stalking from there, or keeping the animal just talking as you move in closer. If you listen to someone else who has a different style of calling and uses a different approach and maybe breaks down the sounds of the elk into several different, Uh, categories of communication. Take what makes sense to you there. Take what makes sense from what we're saying. Put them together into your own style of hunting and go and hunt elk and call elk or do whatever you want to do to be effective there. That creates your hunting style and makes you the hunter you are. And that's all we're trying to do. We aren't trying to say you have to hunt just like us. And if you don't, you're on a different team. There's Uh, no teams here. We're just trying to make you successful on your team. So... That all said. That was a big disclaimer. <laughs> that, that was a big disclaimer, but that's all right.
0: Um, the, uh, and I'm going to just pick some of the points Chuck brought up about how often a herd bull calls every five to 10 minutes. You call. I've hunted with you. You call a lot. We've been into groups where here's the guy who owns the cows He's calling every forty-five seconds. Yeah. If if you get him wound up, y- you
1: and him are having
0: a heck of a conversation. Yep.
1: And I think that comes down to terrain a lot. You know, I know where Chuck hunts is a lot of the more open country, where mm-hmm. it's more uh, conducive to spotting the animal and spending hours moving in to get in close and get in position to get a shot. And in those cases the same reason that you can't call effectively is the same reason that the bulls don't need to call a lot. Mm -hmm. They are able to visually keep track of the cows. They've, they can establish dominance over another bull simply by seeing the other bull. Whereas the areas that I prefer to hunt are thicker timber where the elk are going to be more vocal because they're talking to each other. They might not be able to see each other until they're within 30 or 40 yards. And so they're using their, their vocal communication to build up to that encounter. So,
0: You're very aggressive, caller. I've hunted with a lot of people. You're definitely on the spectrum of passive to aggressive. You're redlined over here on aggressive, and (laughs) you're proud of that, and you should be. Uh, And it's a ton of fun. It is. It it is. uh, It's. It's just a lot of fun, even though it's exerting to keep up with you as you're just going here, call here, call here,
1: call. (laughs) You're not. That's, That's just in the locating phase.
0: Right. So, the, which gets me to, the, to, to where, where I'm going with that is, you don't just walk through the woods and wait until you hear an elk and say, oh, there's one. You're trying to coax these bulls into saying, hey, I'm over here. Yep. Want to play? Yeah. Is, is
1: that kind of like the very first step? It is. And that, I think it's a vital step because if you want to call in an elk, you have to find an elk that's calling. And yeah. there's no other way to say it. I mean, yes, you might get a silent bull to come slipping in cautiously to check you out in a blind calling setup. And, and we'll use those early seasons sometimes. Uh, but for the most part, if you want that vocal interaction with an aggressive bull that is coming in to rip your head off, which is what makes the situation fun, yeah. you've got to find that bull. And you've got to get him talking. And there are times that there will be a bull that is just tight-lipped for whatever reason, but there are ways to get him to talk. And there are, you know, a handful of methods Uh, in the University of Elk Cunning online course. There's a full chapter on, uh, I forget what we call it, but some supplements to calling. And a lot of it revolves around just getting an elk to be vocal. And you've got to get an elk to be vocal to use my calling style effectively. There's just, I mean, it it has to happen. He has to talk in order for me to be able to execute
0: Yeah. So we would leave camp way before daylight, and in the dark, you're calling. Yep. And we're making notes on our GPS. That's part of your process there. Sometimes, yeah, definitely. And
1: a lot of times, it's just to find the bull that is hot that day. Okay. And that might mean we bugle six times, and the bull responds once, and I say, you know what? He's not fired up right now let's go pick a different drainage to hunt this morning and come back this evening and see, or come back after the morning hunt and see if we can get him going midday. And that might mean turn around hiking hike and a half mile back up the ridge to the truck, which is where you usually roll your eyes and shake your head at yeah. me. And you're like, there's a bull bugling over here. We yeah. just spent 20 minutes getting to this point. Now you want to turn around and go back to the truck and drive six miles down the road to try another right. drainage. Yeah. doesn't make sense. It doesn't. But, but you've got to find the bull that's fired up that day. And, huh. I don't know what turns them on from day to day, but some days bulls don't want to play and the next day or another day, that same bull does. Yeah.
0: Well, the, the, the very first step that I've, from my observation of hunting with you is you are looking for, like you just said, the guy who wants to play. Yep. Now you found the guy who wants to play. You, you. I think you take for granted how much information you are filtering the first couple <laughs> times you communicate with this bull. Yeah, and I'll be like, Corey, what did you just say? Oh, I don't know. I think you know what you. Th- you're you're at least making some assumptions in your head yeah. of what's going on here. He's aggressive, or he's defending his cows, or he's in his bed, or he's whatever. Yeah. I, I mean, is that something that just came from experience? Is it? are there certain things that this bull behaved a certain way where this is, I I know that's what he's doing?
1: Yeah, and it's, I mean, again, it's generalized. And it's hard to, I think experience definitely helps. But at the same time, if you have to call five or six times with a location bugle from 600 yards away to get that bull to respond each time, and each time he does it's just a half-hearted squeal or just a couple chuckles or just a growl or something down there, yeah, he's responding, but he's not fired up. He's not just running his mouth, which is the elk I want. I want a yeah. I want an elk that's down there just thinking, <laughs> Today's my day to die. I'm gonna run into anything. You know, and that's that's how I'm reading it. He's down there saying, mm-hmm. I am feeling it today and I'm gonna I'm gonna be king of this mountain today. Yeah. And if I can get a bull that's thinking he's pretty hot stuff on the mountain, that's the bull that I wanna call in. Okay. Because he's gonna be susceptible to wanting to come into a fight. So uh, we ran into some of
0: those. Yeah. And then you grabbed another gear, and you were going even faster yeah. to close the gap. Because sometimes they were half mile, three-quarter mile away. yeah. And you were like, we got to go, got to go, got to go. And you were cutting that distance by... You were getting within 200 yards, with a lot of times not even calling again. Yeah. Just you... I don't know how you were assessing it, but... Yeah, you, you'd go long distances without calling and you'd just be listening and off we'd go. You'd listen, off we'd go.
1: Totally. And if that bull is making noises on his own, if he's bugling on his own, I will keep going in until I can get as close as I possibly can. Just based on him talking. Usually that's not the case. Typically he's standing there listening, going, is he going to talk again?
0: <laughs> you know, he's, he
1: may not be keyed in that they were coming to him, but he now knows there's another elk on the mountain. Mm-hmm. And, 10 minutes later, he might be going to say, hey, where'd you go? Or he might be standing there going, I just heard a branch break. I wonder if that's, you know, a grizzly bear or that other bull. And so hunting in areas where there's predators, they're probably not going to be as vocal on their own. You get in the peak rut, they're going to be far more vocal on their own, but again, harder to call in. So it's just all these different dynamics that you kind of have to filter through of what's the timing of the rut. Are there predators in the area? Are there other hunters? Have they been pressured? Is it early? Is it late? Does he, you know, does he have cows? Does he not have cows? Are there a lot of bulls in the area? High bull to cow ratio? All these things that, you know, I'm trying to filter in and really read the the psyche of that elk and get inside his mind and think, what's he thinking right now? So you
0: realize how many things you just rambled I know, off. And there could be a podcast that, on each one yeah, of them. That you're trying to, you said, I'm trying to filter all this. Yeah. The listener, me and the listeners are like, well, that's great, Corey, but let's tell me about all I know. those things. So yeah. I I hope the listeners will email us and say, all right, smart Alex, yeah. you rambled off all these things. I, I'm here to learn. So maybe, tell, tell maybe me about what we need them. to
1: come up with is, is like a decision tree.
0: There you go. We're sitting here. Here are the 10
1: factors that that I'm filtering through. If it's early season, if the bull doesn't have cows, but he's a mature bull, if the wind's coming uphill, if he's 600 yards away, yes, 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 it filters down to this is the next step. And I think there really is probably a decision tree like that that goes on in my head that I just haven't actually diagrammed out. Maybe we need to build an app. (laughs) <laughs> They're right there in the mountains. Yes, check, 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 submit. All right, here's the next play.
0: So the, the way we got into this is you did not finish this in the last podcast about, and that podcast was about mistakes. Yep. So we're on the topic of calling. Yep. We've started down some trails, some paths here that I'm sure in the next podcast of however many we're going to cover yep. more of this stuff, calling mistakes.
1: Yep. What? I th- I think with what I've said it leads to a couple primary mistakes. Number 1, people here in Elk Bugle, they drop their pack, they kneel down, they get set up right there at 400 yards away. Yeah, and they think and, it's going to come in. And I know I was guilty of it for a long time. I let out a bugle from 400 yards away. The bull answers. I wait 60 seconds. I let out another bugle, the same bugle. The bull answers. I wait 60 seconds. And we do that for 15 minutes. And then the bull slowly turns and walks over the ridge away from me. I think, oh, he's got cows and he's a herd bull and he's bugling and running, which you hear everybody talk about. Yeah. And so I think that's probably the the number one mistake is we hear an elk bugle and we instantly drop down in that scenario, in that situation and try to call that bull in. And there's so much more that needs to happen before that. The second thing is, we don't know what to say or when to say it. Mm -hmm. And so we get into a situation where we're close to the elk now, but we're just in that bugling match where it just goes back and forth. We're just volleying communication and we don't know what we're saying and we don't know what we need to say to get that bull to come in. Yeah. That's why I ask you, what what did you say? And my dad was, he's the one I credit for giving me that, um, I don't know, I, I guess the big picture stepping back instead of saying you're a great caller. And you sound just like an elk, but you suck at calling elk in. (laughs) You know, I mean, that's, that's really what was going on in his mind. I know Uh he said, what are you even trying to tell the elk? Uh And it made me stop and think, well, I'm just trying to tell them that I'm calling and they need to come in, but they have to have a reason to come in. And I think through the years I've realized there's not really very many reasons that an elk's going to come into your calls. What are those reasons? There's only two that I think of and Mm -hmm. they have, and it's natural. It's an instinct for them. They either want to fight the bull because they think that they need to establish dominance or that they're a more dominant bull or this bull has cows that they need to go in and steal so that the fight, or there's a cow there that they want to breed. Flirting. Yeah. And if you can convince them that you're a cow that's lonely, that they have a chance of of hooking up with, they're going to come in. Yeah. If you convince them that you're a bull and that you're challenging them to fight and they have some some chance of beating you in that fight or some reward for beating you in that fight, they're going to come in outside of that. An elk has no reason to come to your calls.
0: Uh, uh, so it sounds like he was the, those elk are like I was when I was in college about at tw- I that tw- analogy 20 years old. I'm like, oh, there's some over there. Well, there's a pretty big guy. I got those ones. No, I don't care. Yep. Walk in there. Get a few teeth shook loose. Oh, that wasn't a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, every once, a every once in a while though, he wasn't the one piping up to attract me. It was it was one of the
1: you know, it's like, man, I'd like to dance with her. Yep. And then, you know, the just whoa. And as we graduate from this topic of elk calling mistakes into actual elk calling tactics, which yeah. I'm looking here and we're at an hour and six minutes. So our listeners are out of patience right now and the treadmill is shut off and he's standing there wiping the sweat off of his forehead. So we can't get into that. But when we get into that, I'm going to bring up your exact example of when you were 20 years old. Because if you will treat elk hunting and think of it from that same perspective, elk, they have have that fight or flight. They have a, a rush of adrenaline and testosterone that they can't control. And when you think about anything you could do to either convince a girl or to convince a guy to fight you, convince a girl to come to you or a guy to fight you in college, yeah. the exact same approach is going to work for calling elk. Really? Yep.
0: I wasn't really good at getting the girls to come to me, but I was really good at getting the guy mad enough to come and fight me. And
1: maybe that's why I'm so effective at calling in bulls that want to <laughs> fight. <laughs> because I was probably that uh, that uh, mouthy, obnoxious... Uh, person I've, that pushed I've, the right buttons i got a few scars here
0: <laughs> to prove that i opened my mouth when I, <laughs> but i still i do an inventory i still have all my teeth so perfect I, that works but anyhow to, to these mistakes
1: it's that uh, you know you calling you mistakes keep, it's it's not being you know the, the setup initially you need to be close so i think too yeah. many people start off too far away not knowing what to say or how to say it or when to say it. And again, I simplify everything. Mm -hmm. I'm an engineer. I don't know if that's why. I don't know if it's my mentality. I look for the easy way. I I don't know, but I know I simplify things. If I look at three ways to do it, my first thought is what's going to be the most effective way Mm -hmm. and then which one's the most simple way. And if it's not the same, I take the most effective way and simplify it to make it (laughs) simple. And when it comes to calling, that's the approach I take. It's, It's very simple. Mm -hmm. And I want it to be simple because I make enough mistakes in simplicity. Yeah. And if it's complicated, I will mistake myself out of any chance of success.
0: Yeah. Well, uh, for me, what happens is I don't know enough about what I'm saying. And so I easily get flustered. I easily lose my confidence of what I've done. And you kind of throw your hands up in the air just because of lack of knowledge and understanding. Of All right, back to your point or your your dad's point of what am I doing to get that elk to come in? Yep, You know, just trying to sound like him isn't going to necessarily get him to come in. Trying to sound like the classic drawn-out bugle yep. isn't necessarily going to get him to come in. There's got to be a purpose with what I'm doing. Totally. And part of that is... As, as, and this has taken me a long time. I mean, I'm still such a novice at it. But every time I make these incremental little steps in my knowledge, it's because I've stopped and thought about, why am I doing this? What? Yep. <laughs> I, I, I'm not going to impress anybody. So <laughs> uh, why? what What am I trying to accomplish here? And a lot of it is trying to understand and listen to what they're saying. And yeah, I don't know what they're saying, but... I've been around elk enough that I can kind of tell what their behavior is by their noise, by how loud the volume, the pitch, the how frequent. Uh, Maybe I'm hearing a really loud bugle here, but I'm also hearing a bunch of cow calling. There's so many things that are going on out there that you really got to be paying attention to or you're missing some of the pieces. Totally. And I
1: I think that you, you nailed it right there. That's that's bow hunting. That's elk hunting in a nutshell. If you aren't paying attention to what happened and trying to analyze why did that happen, you're not learning. I mean, you really aren't. And you mentioned two words that I think are so critical, knowledge and confidence. And yeah. I really think we had a T-shirt at one point that said confidence equals success. And confidence comes from knowledge. Right, so for sure. You start with knowledge and add as much knowledge as you can you're going to be more confident in that. <clears throat> no matter what the topic is, the more knowledge you have about something, the more confident you are to execute on that topic. Yeah. And with that confidence comes success. So it all, it all begins with knowledge and just trying to learn as much as you can so when a mistake happens, you're able to analyze it and assess it and say, okay, this just happened. Why? There's always a why. There is always yeah. a why in Elk <laughs> Always. That's and a... if, you, if you try to not overly complicate it, And remember, this is an elk you're dealing with, not a scientist at NASA or something. (laughs) The why is a little bit easier to (laughs) attain. And then it's totally up to you to to adjust to that why and and make the correction as needed. Yeah. When you were talking about confidence,
0: knowledge in that equation, for me, and and it goes back to a comment you made earlier about how you feel way more confident you're going to hang your tag on an animal in archery season. Yeah me because my greatest amount of knowledge is in post rut and late seasons i'm I, my knowledge base there uh, not that it's huge but if you looked at my pie of knowledge base it's heavily weighted towards those periods yeah so i will continue to do some things that even though they're maybe not showing the results my knowledge gives me enough confidence to keep doing it yeah or doing this, or adapting slightly, and I end up being successful. And it goes back to what you said. My knowledge about what elk do at that time of year is my greatest strength. And that gives me the confidence to go do things where people might be like, what in the heck is
1: he doing? (laughs) But And again, that's what it comes down to, is doing the thing that you're confident in and having enough encounters or enough opportunities to know that you're going to be successful because it's not going to happen the first time every time. Yeah. And you mentioned, you know, you're going to go out and do things that people look at and say, why are you doing that? And you're going to do it and eventually be successful. And hopefully that eventually happens before the season ends <laughs> and you before your days of that hunt end. Yeah. And for me, it's the same way. If I have, if I can get six call-ins, if I can get six elk that I think are committed call-ins, I'm pretty confident we can fill a tag. Yeah. And... There was a point where I would have far more call-ins than that in a season and not even get close to getting a shot. Really. And so it's just a matter of continually fine tuning and honing in on that process and that sequence or strategy that you use, your style of hunting that makes you effective. Uh-huh. In
0: just about every one of these podcasts, you're gonna hear me talk about the uh the the, the tendency I had to not invest in my knowledge. Yeah buy some shortcut of buying a new rifle, buying a new bow, buying a new call. Don't, don't get me wrong. There's always plenty of good reasons to buy new, <laughs> new bows and rifles and calls. I'm not trying to discourage anyone there. But eventually you reach the point where you understand that I have to invest in myself. Yep. I have to invest in my knowledge, my understanding of what is that elk trying to do. He's trying to stay alive today. And he's going to go to bed tonight and he's going to wake up tomorrow and he's going to try to stay alive tomorrow. Yep. In its most basic fundamental formula, that is what is an elk is trying to do every day, every minute, he's trying to stay alive. Absolutely. And it required me to understand and learn more about, okay, how, what does he do each day to stay alive? What's their behavior? What is, what are their needs? What's, yep. what's, what's going on in that elk's life? And the more I learned about elk, all of a sudden you start filling more tags. <laughs> I quit buying gadgets and gizmos and started filling more tags. So. Yeah.
1: Well, we did a survey. I, I don't remember if I mentioned it in the last podcast, but at Elk 101, a broad survey to a lot of elk hunters and the most successful hunters in that survey said that knowledge and experience were the number one factor that led to their consistent success. Yeah, And they were the only group interviewed or surveyed that put that as number one, either number one that would lead to success or that they needed to improve upon to become more consistent. No other group mentioned it but the consistently successful group. And they recognize that it's their knowledge and experience that contribute to their success.
0: Yeah. So... Is that enough on elk calling mistakes? Or, oh, man, or? that's
1: probably enough on mistakes, but, man, Okay. Man. I'm all we're, worked up now. Wanna I want to talk about elk calling. All or. right.
0: Well, let's, let's not just slow well, that I mean, We don't have another we, hour here. We probably oh, better do another episode. R- right. That's what I'm saying. Since you <laughs> already got the, the crowd, yeah, they're probably right now on their phone saying, Corey, this is what happened. I did what you do, and it didn't work. Yep. That's where we got to just kind of stay down this path so that they understand what worked or what didn't work. Because you've, you've never called or never heard an elk bugle that you didn't kill,
1: right? I've never heard an elk bugle that I didn't want to chase. There you go. That's a better way to put it. There have been multiple ones that I didn't kill, more <laughs> than I can even count, and you know, and that's what you know. We're we are by no means <laughs> professional. We are by no means uh, what no. I would consider highly effective. No, we just keep going and persevere, and that's the fun part of it. I I, I think
0: if you, I had success every time I went out there, I'd get bored with uh, it. it. Would I'd quit learning the challenge, the intrigue would, would go away. But yep. there are times when I go through these drought, kind of drought, dry spells where it's like, you know, I could use a little success <laughs> here to, to kind of <laughs> throw me a bone, you know, but, yep. uh, oh, well, well, folks, thanks for listening. Uh, we got a list of other things here. Corey is, he, he brought calls, he brought everything to Montana. So I have we gotta have some podcast where you do some call on. Yeah,
1: is that was that the plan? I hope so. On The next one. Yeah, maybe not the next one, but or, I don't, or, yeah, or the at next some point one. I'd love to. Okay. At least see if we can peek out the audio sure. sensors here on the equipment. Oh, and, I'm sure we can. <laughs> I mean, uh, that's what we have editors for. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Good luck working with this one. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm. Uh, we're here. We're gonna record at least one more, I think, and yeah. then uh, we're going to the Total Archery Challenge in Big Sky. This weekend, and going to hopefully sit down with a few other people and discuss a few other topics. And.
0: Yeah, but before we do that, I got to talk about this uh, project. You know, we're picking. We're getting a lot of good nuggets out of Bugle Magazine. Yeah, there
1: are nuggets there. Yeah.
0: So I don't know if people understand that their what is it thirty five dollar membership or whatever level of membership or their volunteerism goes to these kind of projects. Yeah. But this one, if you hunt the San Luis Valley in kind of south-central Colorado, down by Alamosa area. Uh, I don't want to get too specific because it'll get (laughs) run. But when this project came up, uh, I was aware of it, and I heard about it. I'm like, oh, my goodness. What kind of deal? That, That would be, like, classic. So it's called Middle Creek, and what it is is there was this BLM road that went up this drainage, and then it crossed private, and... There's all this beautiful elk country back there, but it hits private.
1: And there's no easement through private land on uh-huh. that no. piece? So uh, this
0: Middle Creek project, the Elk Foundation bought 24 acres and it secured and permanently improved the access to another 8,500 acres. So that's pretty good bank. I don't it. know, but, does it
1: say in the article what they spent on the 24 acres? No, it, it doesn't. But but I, I was just, you know, comparing, looking at that. If you're, a, if you're into investing or anything like that and you look yeah. at, if I spend 24 acres and receive 8,500 acres, that's a good investment. That, that's is someone that your lands group is doing a pretty darn good job. And you look at that. the mission of the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation and realize that the monies that you're spending as a member or going to a banquet and supporting in that way that money goes back on the ground. And I forget the percentage, but they are one of the leading <laughs> organizations right. and they, they show what, what goes right. where. Yeah, And it's in the 90%. Yeah,
0: it's plus or minus right there at 90%. There's a group called Charity Navigator that rates charities. Yep. And the Elk Foundation is always getting, I think it's five stars or oh, yeah. whatever it is. Uh, great thing. But I, when we do these podcasts, I want to make sure people understand this, these are just. By the time we're done doing podcasts and they th- th- send us off to the pasture, <laughs> people are going to hear about so many amazing elk projects. In in, in some of them are in their backyards, yep. and hopefully they understand that because of donors, sponsors, volunteers, great staff that the Elk Foundation has, that becomes very very possible. Yep,
1: so, and it's it's not. The day of sitting back and letting somebody else be the member and contribute is over. We have to band together as elk hunters and as hunters in general. And even there's wider groups that we can look at. But when it comes to elk hunting and preserving their habitat and the animals that we love to chase, there is no one like the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation that is putting dollars on the ground. In that case, 24 acres. They purchased, they own 24 acres of land that they used to open up 8,500 acres of public land that was already there but locked up. right? And, and they didn't have to go and buy that 8,500 acres of land and use that much money to gain all of us access to that. That's huge. And those kind right. of things are things we need to step back and look at as elk hunters and say, I want to support an organization like that.
0: Yeah. yeah. And
1: that 24 acres then, they gave it to
0: the federal agency to say, you manage it, we don't. Yeah. And we're, we're not in the business of owning and managing lands. so. Question of the week from Sitka. This one's going to be pretty... I hope it's simple. (laughs) But whenever you ask an elk calling nut a question about calls, I I get this question all the time. I've got it a couple times in the last week is, do you prefer a diaphragm call or an open read call or a bugle with the built-in read? I know what your answer is going to be, I think. (laughs) But... Pluses so, and minuses of each.
1: Yeah, and there are. So the, the three styles you mentioned, there's a diaphragm call which goes entirely in your mouth and then you use a tube to amplify it. The tube also acts to uh, help scale, help with the back pressure, help the diaphragm operate. So it's not just a volume thing. The tube's really an important part of that system. Uh, the other option is an open reed, which is primarily a cow call. So it's got a soundboard with a, an open reed that you blow across and that vibration produces a cow sound. And the the benefit of that is for somebody who can't use a diaphragm call, uh, the open read call still gets you a very realistic sound. It's more than just one dimensional. You can get a little bit of variation in it. So it's a good option. The third option is the, the system where it's an external call. You basically blow on it. It produces the sound, but they're so one dimensional. You basically have the same... Sound over and over, you can't yeah. chuckle with it. you can't get the emotion into it. but if you can't use a diaphragm call, that's that's really your only option. But hands down, the best way to go is to spend time and learn to use a diaphragm for several reasons. Number one, it's the most realistic call that you're going to use. You're going to yep. be able to make any sound with it. It's going to sound the most like an elk. The second thing is if you're a bow hunter, it's important to have a call that's hand free. Yeah. you know if you're at full draw on an elk and he walks into your shooting lane, I remember hunting with you in New Mexico and we had a bull walk through a shooting lane. And if I remember right, you didn't have a call in. I'd and so committed I think you tried to whistle at it right. and your lips were drying. So it came yeah. out more of a, <laughs> 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 and by the time you got the whistle, the bull had walked through the shooting lane. Yeah. So have, as a shooter, having a diaphragm in your mouth, so you can be at full draw and cow call to stop the bull is, is so important. If you're using an open read cow call, and you're trying to put it in your mouth and call call with it while you're at full draw, there's a train wreck and possibly a trip to the hospital that's going to ensue. So <laughs> diaphragm uh, calls are, are absolutely the way to go. They're the hardest one to learn to use. Mm-hmm. But I think, again, it goes back to that putting time in, investing in yourself, investing in learning how to use and, and operate a, call, a diaphragm call confidently is going to pay off huge dividends for
0: years to come. Yeah. Well, that's the thicker question of the week. Thanks for answering it. I wish we would have had the camera rolling when I walked up to Corey very sheepishly. I knew the mistake. Is like, oh, I can't believe I didn't have my diaphragm in my mouth. <laughs> and I walk up to Corey and he's like, why didn't you shoot? I'm like, you couldn't get him stopped. He said, I didn't hear you call. I'm like, um, <laughs> uh, "I'm I was trying to think of some good excuse because I know what an amateur rookie mistake that was. So I just... Kind of looked down,
1: kicked the dirt and said, I didn't have my diaphragm (laughs) in my mouth.
0: (laughs) I think when you caught Uh, up to
1: me about three miles later and I finally talked to you again, I made sure you had a diaphragm still in your mouth. Yeah, that was... (laughs) Yeah. I'm excited to get Dirk Durham on on the podcast with us because he could probably share a few experiences yeah. like that. I've thrown him under the bus a lot. Mm-hmm. Sure. I think he's probably primed and and ripe to throw me under the bus a little. Oh, that's good. We need some of that. So,
0: uh folks, as you're listening to this podcast, we're trying to be what I will call the seasonally appropriate in the content. Yeah. Like right now, everyone's thinking about archery season. The rut's so, coming up. Yeah. So, as we get through archery season, We'll start shifting more to rifle hunting and, and other things. And after all the seasons are done, we'll probably start talking about equipment and gear and tag applications. I was just say, and, yeah, uh, all where are going to stuff? Yeah. Uh, so, I think we got a wrap here. Yep. Thanks for listening, folks. Appreciate it. Till the next time. Go and have a lot of fun. Go shoot your bow. Yeah. And practice your diaphragm calls. <laughs> <laughs>